The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Good morning, church. You hear me okay? Is that okay? Okay, we're good. All right, good. Good? Yeah? All right, you're good. Laverty's on this side. This is weird. New year. It's a new year, 2020. It's getting crazy. Hey, welcome to Fathom. My name's Chris. Uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff here. That's Mickey laughing, if you haven't met him. Um, hey, it's really, it's really good to be here. Uh, it's good to, thanks for, I took a couple weeks off. My family and I just didn't come for a couple weeks. It was really good, so thank you for that. And uh, now we're here, we're, we're in it, and we are going to start our study in 1 Corinthians. So please, everybody grab a Bible. If you brought your own Bible, and I hope you did, open that up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There are hardback black Bibles under every single chair. You can open a phone or a tablet. 1 Corinthians 1 is on page 952 in those hardback black Bibles. Um, but we want everybody to have their hand on the text. We don't put verses on screens unless they are uh, like auxiliary verses. So grab a hold of those. You're going to want to see 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today. And, and remember, as you're turning there, remember, most of the time here at Fathom, we preach straight through books of the Bible. And today we're starting 1 Corinthians, which is like 16 chapters. And this is going to take us almost the entire year. Like we're going to spend the whole year in 1 Corinthians and don't get worried about that because it's not going to be boring. Like sometimes things get boring if you're in them for too long, but 1 Corinthians is anything but boring. It is not a boring book of the New Testament. Uh, it covers such topics as uh, disagreements and divisions within the church, which never happens, right? Nobody disagrees in Christianity, okay? Uh, it covers sex, sex and sexual sins, uh, so that'll be really interesting. Marriage and singleness, it covers that. It covers idolatry, covers how the church is supposed to function and run, and then it gets into some crazy stuff in some of the latter chapters, like speaking in tongues and, and prophecies, like some stuff that makes some people uh, uncomfortable, um, if we're honest, and we're probably a mixed bag in this room because we're kind of non-denominational. So some of you come from like Baptist and Presbyterian backgrounds where, you know, we call you the frozen chosen, right? You just kind of, you're rigid, right? And it comes to the, to the charismatic stuff, like maybe a eye close, one palm upward to the Lord. This is about as charismatic as you get. And so this is going to push you probably a little bit. Others of you, man, you're coming from the charismatic backgrounds, a Pentecostal background, and you've just been waiting for 1 Corinthians, right? <laughs> like you've been salivating thinking about this. You're ready to bust out your anointing oils. You've got some flags. You're ready to go. You're going to dance and maybe pull out a tambourine or something. And I just say, hold on, <laughs> like slow down, like leave your tambourines at home. All right, uh, we will get into this and I think it's gonna be really good and really helpful. And so I think some of us, it's gonna loosen us up a bit. I think some of y'all, this is gonna challenge you to loosen up a little bit. And for some of y'all, it's gonna put you in your place and help you understand order within the body of Christ. So these are really good things. And then the, the letter culminates with maybe the most extensive teaching on the resurrection and the end times that we find in Paul's writings. So this is gonna be a fun year. It's gonna be really fun, at least for me. All right, you may not have any fun at all, but I'm gonna enjoy it, okay? Today though, what I want us to cover is the introduction to the letter. And so uh, when we start a sermon series, like when I begin uh, studying a book, I, I use commentaries. And I brought one of my commentaries like this, 1 Corinthians, thick. This is thicker than the Bible. 
So you know they have a lot to say about one book of the Bible in these things. And I, I get these books and I start reading them. And in commentaries, sometimes there are like hundreds of pages at the beginning of each commentary that talk just about like the setup for that book before you even get into the text, before you even get into the commentary on the Bible. And so I've done the work and kind of distilled those hundreds of pages in multiple books down for us today so that we can kind of know what we're getting into as we get into it. So that's what we're going to work on today. It's going to be, some of this is going to be a little information heavy. Stick with me, okay? I, I promise there's payoff if you stay with me in this, okay? So uh, 1 Corinthians, it is a letter written by a man named Paul, okay? Uh, written to a church in the Greek city of Corinth. 1 Corinthians, a letter of Paul. And I make the point as we start that this is a letter, we call these things books, right? Books of the Bible. But in fact, uh, many of the New Testament books are actually letters. It's like reading mail. It's correspondence between somebody and a group of people. So 1 Corinthians is actually, it's actually a series of letters because right after it comes 2 Corinthians. You guys are Bible scholars, okay? Good job. I was hoping I wouldn't have to help you with that one, okay? But... But in 1 Corinthians 5, here's where it gets a little confusing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul mentions a letter that he had previously written to the church at Corinth that we don't have anymore. So actually, that would make 1 Corinthians 2 Corinthians, okay? Just so you're aware, okay? And then 2 Corinthians 2 mentions another letter that came in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And so that would make 2 Corinthians 4 Corinthians. Confused? So... All that to say, like, don't worry about it. We call them first and second Corinthians. There's, there is this ongoing conversation that's happening between Paul and this church in Corinth uh, because Paul was the church planter. He had started this church in Corinth and about a year and a half after planting this church, he moved on as was his normal routine uh, to go and plant other churches. And so what we're reading in 1 Corinthians in our Bibles is actually maybe four or five years removed from when he left that church. And what's happening is he's hearing about all kinds of problems that that church is having like all kinds of mess that's happening. And he's writing these letters to address some of those problems now that he's no longer at that current church. So here we go. First Corinthians one, starting in verse one, let's get into it. Look at your texts. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, the reason why I didn't have Andrea read that verse is because of that name, Sosthenes, because that's difficult to pronounce and I didn't want to put her through that. Um, but this is the first thing that we always do when we start these books. These books tend to be like these first verses, we throw them away. We just read right over them real fast and we don't dig into what's actually happening. So today we're going to talk about the context. What, wh who was the author? Who is Paul? Where's the setting? Where is Corinth? What is this city? And, and where are we in the larger story that the Bible is telling? So I'm going to walk us through a number of things here. Uh, you don't need to turn in your Bibles to these things, but if you are a note taker, and I think there's a better chance that you're going to heaven if you are, but if you don't have any Bible to prove that, I have no way of proving that, but just throwing that out there. 
If you're a note taker, maybe write some of these passages down, okay? Because we're going to run through a little bit of history of the, of the early church to get us to 1 Corinthians. We're going to start in the book of Acts, okay? Now, Acts is the story of the early church. The beginning of Acts, Jesus ascends to heaven. He has died buried, resurrected, and then he ascends to heaven in Acts chapter one. So he's no longer around, but now begins the church, the, the place where he said, hey, I'm gonna, my presence is gonna be there. I am gonna be the head of this thing. And we, the, the book of Acts uh, essentially is the history of the early church, probably about the early, maybe 40 or 50 years of the church. And it starts with 11 guys in an upper room. There was a 12th. He didn't do so well. And so there's only 11 hanging out in this upper room. And then the story goes that this church just multiplies. It like explodes. It slowly at first, but then very rapidly expands across the known world. And, and in some of the most astounding ways. It expands in some of the most astounding ways, one of which is through the ministry of a man named Paul. We first meet Paul in Acts chapter 7 under a different name. You know what that name is? Saul. Okay, good. Bible scholars here. If you didn't know what that is, don't feel like you're out of the loop, okay? In Acts chapter 7, uh, this brand new bunch of Jesus followers, they're not even known as Christians yet. They're just known as Jews who follow the way. That's what they called it, the way. And, and this new way, uh, they're beginning to find some resistance from the Jewish authorities of their time. The Jewish authorities are starting to resist this new way. And Acts chapter 7 tells us the story of one of their leaders named Stephen, this guy named Stephen. And he's preaching the gospel and he's calling the Jews to repent for what? Killing Jesus. That's why they're ticked at him. Okay. Hey, you killed Jesus. No, I didn't. I'm going to kill you. That's kind of what's going on. And the Jewish authorities are getting ticked off at Stephen. And here's what happens in Acts chapter seven, verse 58. Then they, the Jewish leaders cast him, Stephen out of the city and stoned him. Not like boulder stoned him, like threw stones at him until he was dead. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the first time we meet Saul. They lay their garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's his Jewish name. He would later go by his Latin name, which was Paul. Okay, here's what we know about Saul. He's a young man, probably at this point in his 20s or 30s, uh, he has ascended quickly to a very high role in the Jewish leadership, which is called the Sanhedrin. He has, he has been promoted really early because he's brilliant. He's brilliant. Um, and people are now looking to him for approval in this murder of Stephen. That's culturally what it meant to lay their coats at his feet. It was like they were asking his approval, his, that, that, that Paul was, or Saul at this point was going to give them the okay to stone Stephen. So he's young, he's charismatic, he's brilliant, he's devout, he's successful, and he is very anti-Christ. He is anti-Christian. He wants to kill Christians. He's not like Paul, an apostle at this point. He's Saul, the Christian killer. That's how we find him. And then look at, uh, look at Acts chapter eight, verses one and three. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. So he did that. They laid his, the garments at his feet and he said, okay, kill him. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, the Christians, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse three, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So uh, Saul really from the get-go is is not the most likely candidate to be a part of this new movement of Jesus followers. In fact, he is kind of the complete opposite. You think if, if Christianity is going to fail, it might just fail at the hand of this guy, Saul. He's killing Christians. So I just want to say this right off the bat. Whatever baggage you might be bringing into your faith, like whatever things you might have in your past that you're like, ah, that makes me questionable in the sight of the Lord. You probably weren't killing Christians. So if Paul can be used, like maybe you can, like maybe your baggage isn't as big a deal. I mean, it's a big deal, but maybe it's not as big a deal. God has used significantly flawed men and women to further his kingdom. So that's Saul. Look what happens though in, in Acts chapter nine. Acts 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, there's the Christian word, the way, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So what's happened here is the persecution of these Christians, of this, the way, Those Christians, they then scatter all over the the Roman Empire. And now Saul is seeking permission to get the ones that left Jerusalem, specifically at this point at a place called Damascus. You with me? You staying with me? Okay. Verse three. Now, as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Saul, like en route to murder Christians, has an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And this one encounter alters the entire course of his life and hear me, of human history. This one encounter. In my Bible, I don't know what it says in your Bible, but in my Bible, it gives little like headings that aren't original to the text, but they added in by editors. But that little, that little heading for that section reads the conversion of Saul, his conversion. That's what we call this kind of thing. A conversion. Another theological term for conversion is is what we call justification. Justification. Before this conversion or this justification, you weren't following the way of Jesus. Not at all. You're doing your own thing. You're going your own way. You're being your own Lord. And then you encounter Jesus. Somehow, maybe it's an extraordinary way like Saul or, or maybe in a more ordinary way like many of us. But that encounter, it changes you. You are no longer the same as you were. You're now following the way of Jesus. That's conversion. That's justification. And that's what just happened to Saul. 
He met Jesus and his life was altered dynamically. So here's what happens. Saul heads into Damascus. He doesn't kill Christians. Instead, he meets with some followers of Christ who were rightly a little skeptical about him right away, right? I mean, the, the whole like Christian killer who's mis- mysteriously converted. Like, is this some, some you know, gag to kind of get in behind him? Is this like the Trojan horse thing? No, he's actually converted. And, and Jesus actually speaks to one of the followers in Damascus concerning Saul. This is what he says in Acts 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, go, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now stay with me here. I promise there's payoff. Just, just bear with me. This call of Saul is fascinating. This is fascinating because it says there are three groups listed in this text that he is called to. That, that Saul is called to. And notice the order, okay? This, is, this will be important. He is first called to the Gentiles. And, and the word Gentiles just means non-Jews. At that, at that time, the Jews said it's, it's those who believe, like Jews, Judaism, Jewish, Hebrew people, and then everybody else. Those are Gentiles. And so that's probably most of us in this room. You might have a little Jewish in you, but most of us are Gentile Christians. So Paul or Saul is called to the, the Gentiles first, and then he is called to kings. And if, if you follow his whole story, Paul ends up in front of kings. King Agrippa, he is up in front of kings. He ends up actually at the end of his life in front of Caesar. So he is in front of kings. But then thirdly, it says that he is, he is to preach to the, the children of Israel, So kind of like third on his list is like, oh yeah, and the Jewish people as well. Like you should preach the gospel to them, but they're third on his calling list, Gentiles, kings, and then the Jews. Now at this point in the known world, the entire church, this, the way, the way of Jesus is exclusively made up of Jewish followers. There are no Gentile Christians at this point. It's just Jewish followers people, but that's Saul's calling. Saul is called to the Gentiles. So now here's what happens. Saul, who's now a Christian, he's, he's a part of the way that he was once persecuting. He starts preaching like almost immediately. We would not have somebody who recently okayed the murder of people, give him a face mic. Like this is not how things play anymore, but I guess in the first century, that's how they work. So he starts preaching like with power and the Jews, they get ticked that he switched teams because he was once on their team, angry at the Christians. Now he's on the other team. And so they want to kill him. They plot to kill Saul. So the leaders of the church hear about this, send Saul back to Tarsus, his hometown to avoid being killed, which is good. Now, a very interesting thing happens here in the book of Acts. Saul goes dark. Like he disappears from the story for a few chapters. And during those chapters, we think that about 13 to 14 years transpires. And we don't hear from our brother Saul at all during that time. So the question is, what is he up to? Like what's Saul up to in those, in that decade and a half? Well, we don't know what's going on. Well, we don't know for sure, but we can wager some things. Likely he's working. He was a tent maker by trade. So he's probably working. I would assume he's being discipled at this point. 
right? Growing in his relationship with Jesus. He's a new Christian, okay? You don't just instantly go from, from a Christian hater to the apostle Paul called to the Gentiles, right? Like that doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes discipleship. So he's, he's out of the picture for like 13, 14, 15 years And then after more than a decade of waiting, Acts 11, a guy named Barnabas goes down to Tarsus to find Saul and to bring him up to a place called Antioch to plant a church with him. Barnabas goes to Saul. It's like, hey, bro, I want you to come be my assistant. Help me plant this church in Antioch. And after a year of Antioch church planting, something happens. Acts 13. Here we go. Now. They, now, I'm sorry. Now, there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So there's Saul. He's in Antioch at this church. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So it's been 15 years at this point since Saul's conversion, since God called him to the Gentiles and to the kings and to the Jews. And now 15 years later, the Holy Spirit reminds them of that call and sends them off to begin planting churches. 15 years, that's what happens. And then Paul, for for, for the rest of the book of Acts, travels all over the known world. And this dude is just a hoss. I mean, he's like planting churches all over the place. I don't know how many churches this guy planted, but he is like hitting it out of the park almost everywhere he goes. And you know that he is because everybody wants to kill him. You either want to kill him or you're converted. That's all that he does to you. That's how you know you have a good preaching ministry. They either want to kill you or they're in. That's how it plays. And this is Paul's methodology. He goes to a major city. He goes to the majors, major cities of the area. And then he immediately finds the local synagogue to preach the gospel. Now, who would he find in synagogues? Jews, you guys are so smart, okay? So early in his church planting career, he starts with the synagogues preaching Jesus to the Jews. Now, where on his list of calling are they? They're third. They're third. But he starts there. And I just want to pause here for just a moment and take a breath for me and for you and make a little application. Uh, We don't have time to do all the math, but as we study this story, um, there is a huge gap of time between when God calls Saul and when Barnabas picks him up. And then there's this another, another huge gap of time between that and when he finally plants the church in Corinth. And it's like more than two decades. Like more than 20 years separate calling in Corinth for Paul. And this is the point I just wanted to make on this one. This faith stuff, it takes time. It's better with age. Good cheese, good wine. It's just, it takes time to mature and develop and get better. A lot of time. 
And, and, and that rubs against our culture significantly because, because following, following Christ is not a sprint, right? It's a marathon. And I hate running. Right? Like, it's not microwave dinner. It's like crock pot, like hours upon hours working heat around food to make something incredible. It takes a lot of time. I got saved in 2001, uh, and, and quickly thereafter, I felt a call into church ministry. And, um, and from 2001, it wasn't until 2005, I was in college, and I sensed that God maybe had like church planting for me. Remember, I was dating Marcy. I was like, I think he's got church planning. She's like, uh-uh. I was like, all right, let's get married. So that's how that worked. <laughs> um, but then I started working in churches. Like I got a job as a youth pastor and I got a job as a worship leader and I kind of did these things. I, wor- I went to seminary and studied for like 10 years. Didn't get my doctorate, but got through it. And, uh, and Marcy and I got married and we lived and we worked and we grew and and so from 2005, it wasn't until 2015 that, that we planted Fathom. It was 10 years from the call. Like I, I remember in college distinctly thinking, I might want to plant a church. And in 2015, like seven of you were there and it was awesome. We did it, but it was 10 years. And, and then from then, like, listen, the first four years went awesome. It was great. And then last year was not. It was an awful year for me. And I didn't realize it at the time, but Jesus was just taking me deeper and deeper and deeper. It took 10 years and it took four years and it took a year of really hard stuff. And it's just Jesus progressively. All this stuff takes a lot of time. All this stuff, I'm not even 20 years into my walk with Jesus, and I still feel like I'm seeing some things clearly for the first time. Like, what about the next 20 years? How much better will that be? This goes completely against our culture of instant gratification. And I think it's one of the main reasons why the church has a hard time taking root in the West, It's why I think the church is in some ways in decline in America, evangelicalism. And it's because we're in this instant gratification world. But if you're willing, listen, if you're willing to journey this long, slow road with Jesus, he'll get you to some incredible places. Like the calling that he has for you might not manifest itself for 10, 15, 20 plus years. But what if when you get there, it's what Jesus wants for you? Take a longer view of this thing. Our brother Paul did not start as the apostle Paul. He started as Saul making tents in his hometown for more than a decade. Just keep that in mind. That had nothing to do with 1 Corinthians. All right. So that's Paul. Christian killer, converted to church planter. Now back to our text, okay? You got your Bibles open still? 1 Corinthians chapter one, look at verse two. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Okay, stop there. So we've talked about Paul. Let's talk about Corinth. How does Paul get to Corinth? One more stop in the book of Acts, okay? Acts 18 verse one. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So he gets there. 
He's planting churches all over the known world. And finally, he gets to this city called Corinth. Hooray, Corinth. He's there. Finally, Acts 18, okay? Now, let's talk about Corinth real quick because you got to know what Corinth the city was like to understand what Corinth the church was like to understand how Paul could plant a gospel mission in Corinth. So Corinth was a, a crossroads in the Roman Empire, specifically in Greece, it was like a crossroads city, okay? Uh, by, by Paul's day, Corinth was actually known as the Bridge of Greece. I don't know. It's like colorful Colorado. The Bridge of Greece, okay? Uh, all north-south land travel and all east-west sea travel went right through the city of Corinth, that's why it was an important place. And I told you, that's where Paul, he found major cities and he went to the synagogues and he planted churches in these major cities. Kind of it's like Denver at some level. Like Corinth is kind of like Denver, right? I-70 east-west, I-25 north-south. We're not really in the Midwest, but we're not really on the West Coast. We're kind of like the bridge for the country, the best part of the world, okay? Now, the result for Corinth is that it was a very affluent city. Okay, think about this. Commerce, lodging, tourism, goods, services, entertainment, technology, construction, sensual pleasures, food, drink. I mean, it's like the adult playground of Greece at that time. Everything's going through Corinth. It's on the up and up, okay? Attracting entrepreneurs, attracting those who want to make money, attracting those who are looking for the good life. Lots of transplants from all over the Roman Empire flooding to Corinth, okay? Corinth is a city that worships money and experiences and sex and play. Does this sound at all familiar? And now, Paul shows up in Corinth. Let's see how he begins his work there. Verse four, Acts 18, verse four. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. So he, again, he's using his old style. He goes to the synagogues. He starts with the Jews and it, listen, it's been successful in his first foray into church planting. He plants to the Jews and it's been very successful. So here he is again, but remember who's he called to first? The Gentiles. Okay, look what happens in verse 5. Acts 18, 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Verse 6. And when the, they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments, which I'm going to start doing when you don't like what I have to say. He shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. And then here's the line. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Don't miss this moment. From this moment forward, Paul shifts his focus away from the Jews first and onto the Gentiles, onto his call what God had first called him to, the very purpose that God had for him on his conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul is now living into that very calling and God begins to do incredible things through his work of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. So before Acts 18, okay, the churches all over the Roman empire were predominantly Jewish and a little bit of Gentiles sprinkled on top. But, but, 
Corinth, the church at Corinth, is the first church in history that is predominantly Gentile. And the good news is that most of us are Gentiles. Like we are in line with Corinth, not with Athens, not with Tarsus. Like we are Corinth kind of people. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Paul's experience in the city of Corinth. Corinth leads to Littleton. It will. It'll get us here. And this is incredibly important for how we then interpret 1 Corinthians because the church in Corinth is a freaking mess. It's a train wreck. The people, like even today, people blast Corinth as like the dysfunction. And listen, we're going to see they are messed up. This is a messed up church. But I just want to say this from the get-go. Let's cut them a little slack. Please. Remember what I just told you about the city? These people are primarily ex-pagans, all right? These aren't homeschoolers or like Christian school kids, right? These are public school, okay? 12 years, public school. Can I get a witness? Anybody else? Okay. You can only mock them if you are one and I are one, all right? That's who we're dealing with here. They don't know the Bible, They don't know the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're new at this. You're dealing with people who prior to converting to Christianity would worship pagan gods by going to the temple of Aphrodite and having sex with temple prostitutes, multiple prostitutes as worship. Change is not going to happen overnight in the church in Corinth. So this church is is planted in a city where debauchery is the norm. And Paul's like, ha ha, that's my place. Those are my people. I'm going to do this. Now, the Jews aren't pumped on this. They don't like this at all. They don't like Paul anymore. They will continue to attempt to kill him. And ultimately, they do a pretty good job of it through the book of Acts. Um, But but here's what I want us to look at real quick before we go back to 1 Corinthians. Look at verse 9 in Acts 18. I'll put it up here. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, after they, they're trying to kill him, they're, they're hating on him for leaving the synagogue, for planting a Gentile church. After this, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And I love that line. I have many in this city who are my people. Now, I'm a Calvinist. Okay, Uh, just admit it. Hello, my name is Chris. I am a Calvinist, just so you're aware of that, okay? And if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. Just don't even worry. Uh, If you do know what that means and you disagree with me, that's cool too, all right? Just know that God predestined you to be here today, um, <laughs> listening to a Calvinist, okay? But, but when, we pr- when we planted Fathom, when we planted this church, this was one of the verses that, that like struck me. And, and I've, I've been standing by this. I have many in this city who are my people. God has people that he has chosen, that he has Listen, predestined 
to be his followers in this city. What kind of God looks down at this city like Corinth, this city where um, immorality was rampant, idolatry, greed, materialism, right? Pursuit of physical pleasure, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of anything and everything they could ever want. Sounds, sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah. Why not just blast that thing with, with fire from heaven? Instead, the Lord speaks to Paul and says, hey, I look at that city and I've got many in that city who are my people. What kind of God does this? Church, I believe this for us. That God has people who are his. And you know them. But they just need to hear the gospel. They're your neighbors. They're your coworkers. They're your family members. I have many in Denver who are mine. I have many in Centennial who are mine. I have many in Highlands Ranch who are mine. I have many in Littleton who are mine. For me, for me personally, I have many on Roxbury Drive who are mine. 14 homes, two Christians, 12 that might be his. Wherever you live or work or go to school or play, God has many people there. Don't be afraid. This is the message of Paul. This is the message for us. Don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. Why? Look at verse 10. I put it up here. For I am with you. You remember Christmas Eve? God with us? I have many in this city who are my people. Okay. Did you, are you still with me? We okay? We've talked about Paul. We've talked about Corinth, okay? He planted the church at Corinth. Now we're four or five years later, okay? In our book, in 1 Corinthians, we're four or five years later. He's hearing about all this crazy stuff that's happening, messed up, messed up stuff that's happening at this church in Corinth. So what's he gonna say in the rest of his introduction? Like what's Paul's first message to this church that is falling off the rails, as it were. Well, he, he gives this introduction message and then he offers thanksgiving for them. And, and so I could have preached a whole other sermon on this and I just, for the sake of time, am not going to, but here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna read the rest of the passage so that we spent a lot of time on verses one and two. I'm gonna read the rest of the passage, make a couple of comments and we're done. Here we go. First Corinthians, back on your text, verses, uh, well, I guess the end of verse two. To the church of Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who are in every place, all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Verse three, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace God that uh, the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul likes run-on sentences. We'll get into that later, okay? 
What's Paul's message here? I know that was just a lot of text. And so we could break all of that down word by word, but let's just talk about this. What's his main message as he starts this letter to this church? Because there's a lot there. Here's what I think uh, that encapsulates the entire message and even the thanksgiving. And it's, it's found in, in verse two. You are sanctified in Christ Jesus to be saints together. So this is my main thought sanctified together. That's what I think he starts with. This idea that you are sanctified together. Now, each of those concepts are hugely important. I'm going to break them down quickly. Okay, sanctification first. Sanctification is a big theological word that probably doesn't come up in your everyday conversations often, but it's very important, and we talk about it a lot at Fathom. So if you've been around for a while, you know we talk about sanctification a lot. The Greek Greek word is hagiatso. Can you say that? Hagiatso. That's Greek. See, scholars, good job. Hagiatso uh, literally could be translated set apart. <laughs> to be set apart. So it could literally read to those set apart in Christ Jesus. And theologically, when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about m- maturing in your faith. To be sanctified is to mature, to, to grow up, or as we say in, at Fathom, to go deeper, to go deeper with Jesus. <laughs> Three things that I want to point out about sanctification. First, sanctification is progressive. Sanctification is progressive. It is a process. It does not happen all at one point. You and I are slowly, remember what we talked about with Paul, over a long time being progressively sanctified. We are becoming more and more sanctified day by day, matured, set apart, holy, going deeper. And we are becoming less and less like the world around us. This is different than being saved or the conversion thing we talked about, right? Okay, when you are saved, when you are justified, when you are converted, it happens completely and in an instant. You put your faith and trust in Jesus and you're saved. Just like Paul on that horse in Damascus. He is saved. You are justified. Justification is instantaneous. But sanctification is a process that begins when you are justified. So sanctification is progressive. Second, sanctification is cooperative. It is cooperative. It is a work of God and of us. It's both. Now, justification, on the other hand, 100% complete work of God. God is the one who saves. We do not justify ourselves. But in sanctification, we have a role to play. It's not all on us, but we play a part. It's cooperative. God is actively at work, transforming us, deepening us by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And we also get to work practicing spiritual disciplines, praying, spending time in the word, straining to become more and more like Jesus, sanctified. Sanctification is a work of God and of man. Third thing, and this is where the second word from our text comes into play. Sanctification is communal. Sanctification is communal. Sanctified together. And this is where, again, 
Western individualistic society leads us astray, leads the church astray, because what we're told is that it's just you and Jesus, just you and your buddy Jesus, and you're good, right? You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You just listen to your favorite preacher whenever, pause it, run into 7-Eleven, come back, press on pause. Just listen to your favorite worship album, right? In the soup, get your arm up, praise the, lead, praise the Lord. Keep your eyes open, but you know, whatever. Just go to church whenever you feel like it. I won't get too soapboxy on this one, but it's just like, just go whenever it feels okay. It's not a priority. It's just whenever it, you feel, you, and, and then beyond that, you check out different places. You're like, oh, I like that. I like this. I'm going to try that. And, and you just check out all these. You're not committed to a people. You're not in a discipleship group or a, or a Bible study. Like you're just kind of floating a little bit. And there may be a season for you to find a church, but you're supposed to find one. You're supposed to find one. And we say this all the time. So just listen to me once more on this one. Church is not an event you attend. Church is not content you consume. It's a community you belong to. It's communal. This is one of our marks of a disciple at Fathom, that a disciple of Jesus lives in community, is in community with other Christians, sanctified together. This is why all month we've been pushing D groups, we've been pushing women's studies, Like these things are meant to help you progress in your sanctification together with other people. Now, what's the mess that's happening at at Corinth? Like what's the mess in in this Corinthian church that he's addressing? I just want to list a few things. We're almost done. Stay with me. Here's a few things that are going on in in Corinth. He's going to address all these. So it's awesome. Uh, there, There are major divisions and quarreling over leadership issues in their church. The church is like at odds, about to split. And so they're dealing with this. There's sexual immorality happening in the church that's causing the pagans, the pagans in the city to blush. Like that's nasty. Right? When, when like, when like the, the, the porn stars are like, huh, right? That's what's happening. I'm not making it up. You'll see it, okay? Members of the church, they're suing each other. They're like taking each other to court for money. They're flaunting their freedoms in Christ and causing weaker Christians in their midst to stumble. Goodness, people are getting drunk at the communion table. I'm I'm not joking. If you have to go back twice to communion, like you have a problem. You need some help at that point. Like that's a problem. And listen, that's not what's happening in the city of Corinth, That's what's happening in the church at Corinth. Now look back in your text to verse two. Just one more time. This is what Paul says. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Is that past tense or present tense? Past tense. Homeschoolers, anybody? No? Okay, past tense, okay? Remember grammar class, that's past tense. They were sanctified. They have already been sanctified. The church has been sanctified. Do those sanctified? Now that list that I just read, does that jive with sanctification? Like sleeping with, I don't even want to get there yet. Like is that, you are sanctified and 
You're doing things that the pagans wouldn't even consider doing. Do those things jive together? How does this work? What does, this, what does Paul mean here? Here's the best illustration I know for this. Sanctification is kind of like marriage. Uh, is marriage a past event or a present process? Yes. Good job. Okay. It's both. So on August 7th, 2007, I was married to Marcy and uh, we made our marriage vows that day. In that instant, I was married. I was married. No one would say, oh, he's only kind of married. No, I was married by law, ring on the finger, married. It's kind of not coming off. All right. So that's how it happened. And here we are 12 years later and we're still married. Praise the Lord, right? Like that is the Lord. We, we are still married, but we have to work on it. Like it's been this progressive thing. It's not like 2007, August, I walked down that, into that room with your dad. She walked with her dad. And then I got married and I was totally, completely, 100% married and never had to think about it again. Like entirely married. Like I was married, but I wasn't married. Like I hadn't figured it out yet. Like we needed to work on it. I needed to learn to confess some stuff. She had far less to confess than I did. Okay. But like we had to work on our marriage. Is marriage a past event or a present process? Yes. I am married and I am progressing in my marriage. Sanctification is the same. You church are sanctified and you are progressing in your sanctification. That's why Paul says to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. Now, when you hear saints, that word, don't go all Catholic, Mother Teresa on me, okay? That's not what he's talking about, okay? The Greek word here for, for saints is hagios. Can you say that? Hagios. Oh, sounds sim- similar? It, it should, okay? Because it, the word sanctification is Hagiazo, the, the word for saint is hagios, same word, different form, same word. Paul says to those hagiazo, those sanctified in Jesus, called to be hagios, called to be saints, to those sanctified, called to be saints. You could translate it like this, to those made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be holy in Christ Jesus. See, Paul's brilliant here. You just, this is brilliant stuff. He doesn't start with a beat down. And he could have. This church was a wreck. And he'll get into it next week, actually. He's going to start with like a heavy fist. But, but at the outset of his letter, he's reminding them of who they are. He's reminding them of who they are and who they're supposed to be, regardless of where they've strayed. He's calling them back. He's reminding them. He's like saying, come on, you're sanctified. You're called to be saints. Come on, don't don't do that stuff. We'll get to that. But this is who you are. And and to end today, that's what I want us to hear this morning. That's what I want to do for us today. As we begin our journey through this entire first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, I want to call, call you back. Like maybe, well, maybe even for the first time, call you to be holy, to sanctification, 
to be saved maybe, and then to walk into maturity. Fathom Church, we are sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together. That's our call. Listen, for you, maybe you need to realize that this Christian thing is a long, slow process. And this year is the year for you to just slow down a bit and be with Jesus. Maybe you need to hear that there are people all around you who belong to Jesus. And it's your call to open your mouth. Like to declare and demonstrate the gospel to them. Or maybe you've strayed. Maybe you have strayed and you've been sanctified at some point, but, but you're not living this holy life. And I don't know what your stray might be. I know what mine are, but, but if we will remember these things, if we will remember who we are, if, if this year, as we, Fathom Church, walk together through this letter and commit to being sanctified in community together, then I think all the things that Paul says in that Thanksgiving piece that I didn't even touch, I think all of those things will be true for us too. We'll have all we need. We'll be presented blameless at the end. Like all of these promises, all of these thanks that Paul gives will be true for us too. I think this is my challenge as we start this book. Let's be sanctified together, church. Sorry it was long. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the start of this year for me. I know they, the church gathered last week and I'm, I bless you for it, but first Sunday back for me and my family. Lord, first Sunday in this, this book of 1 Corinthians. Lord, first Sunday together as we are setting off really into 2020 with a vision. And I pray, Lord, that that vision is depth. For me, for us, for our church, for our city, for our world. Lord, that you would call us back to who we are, sanctified in Christ Jesus, made holy in Christ Jesus, set apart for Christ Jesus. And then I pray, Lord, as we walk this journey together this year, you would make us more and more in line with that reality. That as we are called holy, we would be holy that as we are called to go deeper, we would go deeper. And that would be our apologetic, our witness to a world where there are many who belong to you and just need to hear it and see it and experience it. Lord, grow your church this year. Thank you for 1 Corinthians. We look forward to the, the riches that you have for us in it. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit. Amen.